staying with us, I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1 this morning, as we continue on in this series. In this series for mission, we've, we've, been fo- we've taken a little bit different track on this. We've been focusing on the heart of mission. In other words, what does it mean for us to have a people, to be a people of God who are so in love with God, people who are so have our eyes fixed towards God, um, that mission becomes part of our heartbeat within there. And so this hasn't been, we've been trying to push against any kind of a guilt trip or uh, anything like that with the missions, but rather the hope is enabling us and equipping us to see a heart that loves to see the kingdom of God move forward, that sees it in its goodness and its glory and its wonder. Uh, Let's pray quickly uh, as we go, and then we'll move into Nehemiah chapter 1. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we recognize this morning our hope ultimately comes from you. We recognize that we are sinners. We are broken. We live in a broken world. But you're big, and you're good, and you're God. And so fix our hearts upon Christ this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're taking a little bit of a different turn this morning. This isn't what I planned when I began this series, but throughout the month of October, what we have found is our news cycle has become rather bleak. We've seen a true brokenness in this world, and I don't know about you, but it's been horrifying. Now, of course, some of us, if we keep in mind, there, we can see that there's this brokenness that has been going on. This isn't something that's new. For example, if you came and heard Armstrong's presentation, there's a lot of brokenness that has been going on continually. But in these moments over the last few weeks, many of us encountered and seen true horrors that it, really we haven't been able to escape from. We've seen things like the, the Hamas terrorist bombings of Israel. And we've seen the images that have taken place, and we've heard the reports of babies being uh, decapitated, uh, brutally murdered, innocents targeted, women raped, and true horrors that were done. And of course, this is just one of many other stories that we could look to. We can also look, and we've been bombarded with things from Ukraine, and we've seen how uh, there have been powerful people that have targeted innocents that have taken place. And of course, if you maybe heard Armstrong's presentation, you heard him talk about African warlords who would take children, go to schools, and take children captive. All of these are some things that maybe you heard throughout this last few weeks within there. Indeed, it is enough for us to call out that this is a truly broken or horrific world. It indeed is something that makes us look and say, this is nothing but evil. This is horror. But what is a response? What is a distinctively Christian response to these evils? Because if we don't do it in a distinctively way, a way that we're typically tempted to move into these horrors that confront us, often, I would argue, take us away from a heart of mission, away of heart from love, but actually, and away from a heart that fixes itself on Christ. And instead, it is easy for us to move into these horrors and instead develop a heart of hatred, 
develop a heart that looks at other people with pure, unfiltered hate and anger. For us to develop prejudice, for us to develop nothing that wants anything other than the extermination of others. Now, this isn't saying that we don't want justice to be done. Of course, we want justice to be done. We want those to be, who have done evil to be prosecuted, to be held accountable. But we don't want to be filled with hate. We also don't want to be filled with a fear. And it's easy for us as we look and we become bombarded with all kinds of evil that is around us for us to isolate, to become afraid, to look and become so afraid of the person next to us that we just want to isolate ourselves, that we want to go into our nice little homes, into our nice little places of comfort, into our own little cells, and just forget the rest of the world that is around us. We can move ourselves into fear. Another thing that we can do as we become barded with information, is we can become callous, we can become cynical. We can look at all the things around us and we can say, well, you know, this world just stinks. And we can become so callous to it that we no longer feel, we no longer are moved by the evil that is around us. And that way it can also then, and that leads us into another thing that can happen and that's sensationalism. We can look at the things around us and we can become so desensitized to it. We can look at it and we become playing political games. It becomes almost entertainment to us. It becomes just something that's, and this is what the news cycle often does to us, something that captures our attention, much the way a football game might, that we might be horrified and see our team loses. But we say, well, you know, next week's, there's another Sunday, another thing to do. And we become desensitized to the evil that is around us. We become cynical to it. But this isn't the way of Christ. This isn't the distinctively Christian way. And instead, I want to propose to us that there are heart movements for us to respond to the brokenness and to the evil of this world in a way that actually is able to, for us to process and deal with the brokenness in the, of this evil world, but also in doing it in such a way that not only gives us hope, but moves us into a place of mission. And for that, I want us to look at a book that maybe you haven't thought of in this regards. Maybe it's not a book you've done much into, but it's a book called Nehemiah. And so we'll start to look at the first two verses of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And it says, This is the words of Nehemiah, uh, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with a certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. Now right there we see automatically this helps us place the timeline of where we're at in biblical history. It is those who survived the exile. Now, if those of you have been with us for throughout the year, you know we've been in the book of 1 Samuel, which is where the monarchy of Israel uh, comes about. After David's reign, after Solomon's reign, I should say, the son of David, the kingdom divides into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. 
the northern kingdom becomes conquered and destroyed by a country called Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah lasts longer. However, because of their idolatry, because of their sin, God brings them into judgment. And so, uh, 140 years before Nehemiah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, had come in. He had already conquered them already but he, because they continued to rebel. He came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the gates, destroyed the temple. This is 140 years before. Now, during that time of the Babylonian captivity, they took all of the people, or at least I should say most of the people, especially all the elites from Jerusalem and from Judah, and they brought them into the nation and particularly into the capital of Babylon. And there they had to live. And this was all prophesied. This is all part of what God was doing. And so you can see what God was doing and through some of the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, for example. And so they are under the rule of Babylon. However, while they are under this rule, God had foretold through prophets that Babylon themselves would become judged. And the vehicle of that judgment was the Persians. Now, the Persians was this great, and they, at this time, one of the greatest empires that had ever existed. And so 90 years before Nehemiah, Cyrus, the king of Persia, had come in and conquered Babylon. And when he conquered Babylon, he, sent the, uh, he allowed for the people, the Jews who were in Babylon, to go back to Jerusalem. And that was 90 years before. Now, before, Jerem, uh, before Nehemiah, there were three different returns. There are three different uh, uh, returns from Babylon that had moved uh, from Babylon back to Jerusalem. The, the last one before Nehemiah was led by a priest by the name of Ezra. And that, that was the third one. And that was, uh, I believe it was 14 years. It may have been 13. 13 or 14 years before Nehemiah. Okay? So the last return that had taken place was 13 years before we start now. Now, what we also have found out is during these returns, the people began trying to rebuild the, uh, Jerusalem. And in fact, if you look at Haggai, for example, you see the building project for the temple. But they also tried to build the walls around to establish them in a safe and secure. And so they would they'd be protected from their enemies. However, we find in Ezra chapter 4, the, neighbors, the neighboring nations around Israel did not want them to be able to rebuild at all. They didn't want Israel to return to its regional dominance. In addition to that, there was a great deal of uprisings that were taking place in the area. Egypt, for example, had a huge uprising that took five years for the Persians to quell. And so the neighboring around Israel said, hey, these guys are going to be just like the Egyptians. Don't let them rebuild. And so the same king, who is now king uh, that Nehemiah serving number, came in and said, no, you cannot rebuild the walls of the temple. Or not the temple, excuse me. You cannot rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so he actively came in and said, the city cannot be rebuilt. And so... This uh, Nehemiah has this kinsman, it could have been a brother, it could have been a cousin, son, but it very well could have been his brother, has gone and he's seen what has taken place in Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah is in a place, he's in a, a position of great influence. He is the cupbearer to the king of the Persian Empire. 
he lives a fairly comfortable life in very high esteem. Uh, but he is not with the people. He is in the heart and the capital of the Persian Empire. And so, but yet, despite his high influence, he is still concerned and he's wanting to know what's going on with the people in Jerusalem. So he asks his brothers, what is their state? And so we find the state in verse three, he says this, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, that's referring to those who, who have gone back, the three other returns, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, so in other words, despite the fact that they've been back for 90 years, this city is still in a very terrible, deplorable and vulnerable space. Now, what do we see? Now, what we find, if we were to continue to read the book of Nehemiah, we would see that Nehemiah is a person of action. You can tell there's a reason he is in the position that he is. He is a person who is very competent. He is obviously a genius in administration. He is a gifted leader. And so you can see how he's risen to the ranks of where he is. But notice now, upon hearing the brokenness upon hearing this troubling state, this troubling news that he hears, what his response is. And this is his response. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Notice what this man of action's first response was. His first response was to stop, to begin weeping and lamenting and praying. This was his first response to the brokenness of the evil. And let me submit to you, friends, the first thing I want us to see, that as we are to respond to a broken world, an important first step response to a broken world is lament. Lament, friends, is a powerful Christian, distinctively Christian response to evil and the brokenness of this world. We often want to move to, uh, to, to, hey, let's do something about it. Let's get something done. But let me suggest to you, our first response is to stop, lament, and pray. And lamenting, let me tell you, uh, Three things that lamenting does if we are to stop and lament. The first thing that lament does is it forces us to slow down and to process evil through the lens of truth. It forces us to slow down and process evil through the lens of truth. And in other words, instead of moving into knee-jerk reactions, we stop and say, what is going on? And let's process this through the lens of scripture, through the lens of theology, and through the lens of truth. But the second thing that what lament does, and this is so powerful, is lament encourages us to get angry properly. It enables us to get anger in a proper way. You see, friends, the righteous response to evil is anger. We are not stoic. Christianity is not a stoic religion. It is a feisty religion that is filled with emotions. It should make us angry when babies get murdered. 
It should make us angry when innocents are targeted. It should make us angry when kids get ripped from their families and schools and taken to serve under African warlords. God's response to evil is anger. Now, God does this perfectly. We, honestly, we don't often respond to anger perfectly because a lot of times we don't stop to lament, to process it properly under the umbrella of truth. But in lament, it allows us to acknowledge evil, to see it, to name it, to call it out. It even, as we see in the lament psalms and what's called the imprecatory psalms, it gives us language to curse even, evil even. It enables us to look at it unfiltered, but not be broken by it. To declare it in all that it is and says, this is not right. But also not to be overcome by evil. Because, and that takes us to the third thing lament does. Lament takes our evil and the pain to God. Lament is a tremendous act of faith. It holds nothing back in looking at evil, but it still turns our head in the midst of the evil to a good, sovereign, and ultimately victorious God. A God who sees evil, who is even more incensed and angry with evil than we are, but a God who ultimately has a plan that can defeat evil. A God who says he will step into this evil world, that he will overcome it through his righteousness and his goodness. It enables us to see the bad, but also move towards hope and healing within there. And in fact, if we were to look at Jesus, what we see, friends, is Jesus goes to the cross lamenting. He goes to the cross even lamenting. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He names the evil, but he is able in naming it to move towards it with hope. What lament does is it refuses to take evil and be superficial with it. It refuses to be simply trendy with it. It doesn't simply move on but it longs for Jesus to come and to bring his healing, his healing power and his restoration, his goodness and his grace into this situation. What lament does is it, keep us, it keeps us into two realities of this world. It keeps us tethered into these two realities, the reality of a truly broken world and a truly gracious, merciful God who will save. He responds to evil. But then what we see as well, as we, as we get into his prayer, and he's gonna lament for four months. So in other words, he's gonna wait, he's gonna pray, he's gonna weep, he's gonna fast for four months before he does anything. And we see his prayer, and, we, and the prayer that we see in verse five is at the end because we see he's praying for the action that he's about to do uh, with the king in approaching the king. But as we look at his prayer, what we're going to see in this prayer, he responds to the broken world with confession. Take a look at his prayer in verse 5, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. And, he, and I said, 
O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive to your, and, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them into the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. You see, in this prayer, which ultimately find it is hard, is a heart of, of, of looking to God in, in, in confession, we find, uh, we find four realities we find four realities of the situation. Now, it's easy for us to say, well, this is an administrative situation. They need walls to be built. But in Nehemiah, what we see in his prayer that behind all the brokenness is ultimately a spiritual reality. And then what we also see is his own sin is part of that larger spiritual problem. We see also that there's a hope for brokenness if in God's power and redemption. And the power and the redemption can be sure because of his steadfast grace. Now, let's look at each one of those briefly and quickly. First thing we see is behind the brokenness of this is a spiritual brokenness. Now, this doesn't minimize the understanding and the need for common grace or competent world leaders, nor is this in trying to in any way uh, uh, reduce and, and diminish the incredible complexity of much of this broken world. There is simply no easy answers to the problem of sin. Even upon conversion, and, uh, there is a great deal of gospel work that needs to take place in the brokenness of this world. However, what I'm saying is so easy for us to step back and have common sense solutions that seem so easy, but understand that they are not enough. What is going on at its core is a world that is an open rebellion to the living God. It is a spiritual issue. But even as important as that is for us to understand is that behind that spiritual issue, we ourselves contribute to it. And so you see uh, that Nehemiah says that his own sin is part of the problem. In Nehemiah chapter, six, uh, ver chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, he says he's confessing the sins of Israel he says, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments and the statutes. And so in acknowledging the brokenness of the world, he acknowledges that he himself is a sinful person, that he himself is part of the problem, that he himself is one who needs redemption and grace. This is what helps us keep us tethered to Christ and away from hatred. Our understanding that apart from Christ, 
so go us. Now you might say, well, I would never do anything horrible, evil like that. But yet, what scripture tells us, and really if we're being honest with it ourselves, we have a remarkable capacity for evil within us. A remarkable capacity for hate. A remarkable capacity for horror. It may manifest itself in different ways, but we acknowledge that we ourselves are people that need a savior. And that is an important part of we look at brokenness because otherwise what we do is we then want to move into the brokenness with a place of self-superiority, of self-sufficiency. Look at us. I am the savior instead of being able to point to the one who is the true savior, who is our hope as much as those who are broken. We develop a God complex, but one that ultimately crashes because we ourselves are frail and broken. Nehemiah, modeling the prayers of those others who have been in this situation, like Daniel the prophet, Ezra the priest, similarly acknowledged their own sin. Even though Daniel wasn't part of the, with necessarily with the people, Nehemiah is, is hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, yet he acknowledges that his sinfulness, his own rebellion at heart is part of the issue. But as well with his confession, he doesn't end there because within that you see a tremendous amount of hope. You see a tremendous amount of hope in God's covenant faithfulness. In this prayer, and, and Joseph talked about this last week about praying scripture, Nehemiah gives us a master class in this. If you were to digest most of his prayer, he's praying the book of Deuteronomy. It's quotations all over the place. It's like taking different parts of Deuteronomy and forming it into one prayer. He is testifying to, this, to the steadfast covenant love of God. He's testifying that, that their hope is a God who redeems a God who goes and buys his people back and takes them back for himself. A God who does for his people what they could never do for themselves. It's a foreshadowing of what Christ would ultimately do for us in the cross. It is ultimately looking to a hope, not of that we can get it together, but you are the living God who can save us in your mercy and in your grace. This is our hope. There is a hope, and it is the gospel as a God who redeems, a God who is faithful, a God who does not give up on a broken world, who doesn't say, you guys are just horrible and just hands it off, but rather a God who comes into the darkness, who ultimately sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for the sins of this world, to be risen again, victorious over evil. and is acknowledging that there is a hope that is found in the faithfulness of God. You see, he, as, as one Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, says, in this prayer, Nehemiah came empty-handed. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he had no, uh, uh, he had no right to go to God, but yet he came empty-handed, but he came knowing he wasn't uninvited. In other words, he came knowing a gracious God who invited him to come before him because of his grace. I 
as we process, as we pray, as we lament, as we take the evil to the broken of this world, as we understand our own brokenness and we confess it and we look to God in faith and hope, what we find, friends, is in that process, God begins to change us. He begins to change us so that we begin to respond to the broken world with substantive faith. We begin to respond to this world with substantive faith. What does that mean? Take a look at Nehemiah chapter, 11, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in fearing your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, you see in this prayer a foreshadowing of what Nehemiah is about to do. Nehemiah is about to go to the king. He's looked and he's seen in this process how God has sovereignly placed him as the cupbearer. And he's saying, God, I see where you've placed me. Now, I'm about to go to the king. I'm about to risk my cozy, comfortable life in this high position. And I'm about to approach the very same king who at first had already said, I don't want the walls of Jerusalem to be built. Who years before had already said, "Uh uh-uh, we're squashing this. We're not going to do this. He's going to go to that very same king. Now, this is a tremendous amount of faith. You see, oftentimes, as we pray, we look, we want a nice, what we would call a win-win solution. And by win-win, something that solves all the problem, but really doesn't cost us anything. That really doesn't cause us to have to step out of our comfort zone. That's why we love social media. We can be bold for our causes by putting a meme onto our social page, right? That costs us nothing. And we love that way of posturing. We love that way. Oh, well, you know, I'll give if I get a little extra money. Oh, you know what? Maybe if all my plans fall through, I'll be able to help with something. Now, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on us or anything like that, right? But what God does in shaping us is he is forming us into the image of Christ. And in that process, God is calling us to take up our cross and follow after him. As he shapes us to be like Christ, we see a God who we find in Philippians who, though in the image of, you know, uh, is in the image of God, who is in the exact glory of God, but emptied himself of all the glory due his name and took on form of human flesh to be a servant, one who submitted himself ultimately to death. We see this emptying This movement, it was a costly grace. And as he moves us, as he shapes us in looking at the brokenness, we begin to see a call for us to follow after Christ. For some of us, that may mean we set aside more funds to help support and send missions. 
It may mean we spend more time setting aside to pray specifically for missions. It may mean that we set aside some of our valuable vacation time to go on a mission trip. Or that may mean that we may give up our, 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 our cozy lives to go on mission ourselves. That may mean that we take a little bit more risk within there. That is what I mean by substantive faith. And the faith that ultimately God changes us, that shapes us more like Christ to the very core of who we are. Now, the other thing that we see, this doesn't mean as we say substantive faith that God is depending on us. In this process, in this prayer that we see in verse 11, Nehemiah still recognizes that his entire hope, success, and power comes through the sovereignty of God. He is, Nehemiah recognizes he is every bit as dependent upon God that God is not dependent upon him. He is seeking to place his plans under the sovereignty and the plans of God. So in other words, he's not trying to take over. Okay, God, you've made my heart. You've moved my heart. Now I got this. Watch me move. But rather he's saying, God, guide my steps. I am dependent upon you. In this process of four months of praying, his heart has been shaped and changed. We're filled. We're not going to stop hearing news reports of brokenness. We can stick our heads in the sand and just try to ignore them. We can give ourselves over to hatred, to anger. We can move ourselves back in fear, or we can allow ourselves to become calloused and cynical. Or we can move into the brokenness with faith. Allow ourselves to not move quickly out of it, but to set in it, to lament, and to take it to God in hope. Won't you join me in lamenting this morning? Mm -hmm.